good morning oh it's too loud right is it good morning siji okay uh good to see you all so uh we will continue our study in the book of acts i don't know even with 110 people leaving i don't know why i'm still pushed to the wall i think i can come forward a little bit from next week <laughs> All right. So we will look at uh what we've been studying and today as is uh, clear from the reading we will be looking at Acts chapter 2 verses 22 through 28 and thank you Abhishek for reading and praying for all of us. <clears throat> right. So Kevin De Young in his article entitled Who do you say that I am? He was talking about Jesus. He talks of the importance of understanding who Jesus is. And then he says, we need to understand who Jesus is because not every Jesus is the real Jesus. And he also goes on to ask the question, how many people know the real Jesus? Did you hear that? How many people know the real Jesus? He has listed for us in that article several Jesuses so to speak that are available in the world's religious supermarket and I want to list for you a, a few of them because we would have heard about those Jesuses there is the open-minded Jesus who loves everyone all the time no matter what except for people who are not as open-minded as you then there is the martyr Jesus a good man who actually died a cruel death so we can feel sorry for him then there's a hippie jesus who teaches everyone to give peace a chance imagine a world without religion and help us remember all you need is love then there's spirituality jesus who hates religion who hates churches who hates pastors and doctrine he wants us to find the god within us listening to unambiguously spiritual music then there's a good example jesus who shows you how to help people how to change the planet and become a better you and then i wrote down in my notes after i read that then there's jesus the messiah the one that the gospels portray and the one who's preached about in the book of acts So we raise this question at the beginning. The question is, who is Jesus and what evidences do we have about his identity? Who is Jesus and what evidences do we have about who he is or his identity? Now, through our study of Luke Acts so far, we have been looking at four major themes. And one of the major themes that has come through as a strand right from the beginning is the role of Jesus in the plan and the purposes of God who is Jesus and what is his role in the plan of God and the program of God and the purposes of God so the question also comes up in our minds as we see the crucifixion of Jesus that how could a crucified man be the center of God's work and bring about the fulfillment of God's purposes how could a crucified man be the center of God's work and bring about the fulfillment of God's promises that he had promised long back. 
the book of Acts here provides a considerable answer to these questions that we've raised. But much of the foundation was laid for us in Luke's Christology as we went through all the 24 chapters. So Peter is explaining to us this morning from this passage about who Jesus is and that explanation is not only important for our understanding of the book of Acts, it is also crucial to our Christological thinking as it was to the Christological thinking of the early church. Now the events that are narrated for us in Acts chapter 2 are very significant to the entire storyline of Luke-Acts. Much of Luke's gospel has been spent in anticipation of the fact that the Messiah would one day pour out the Spirit, right? The Messiah would one day pour out the Spirit because right at the beginning, John the Baptist promised, he said, I baptize you with water, but the one who's coming after me, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, So the promise has been made by John the Baptist that there's somebody coming after me. He'll bring in the new covenant. And the promise of the new covenant, that is the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Spirit. And therefore, much of Luke's gospel as we studied it has been spent in anticipation of the fact that one day the Messiah is going to pour out the Spirit. And that's what we find in Acts chapter 2. So Peter's explanation here is the first missionary speech in the book of Acts, and one of the most significant speeches in the entire book of Acts, and not just that, but in the entire church history, because he's going to draw from a lot of Old Testament prophecies and connect them to the person of Christ and his identity, and explain to the audience and indirectly to us, who is Jesus, and what is his role in the plan of God. And also, in this speech, we have some very core elements of gospel preaching, that we need to identify, so that will help us when we share the gospel or present who Christ is to our friends. And that's why this speech that we're going to look at is very significant, not just for the hearers who are listening to Peter live, but also for all of us and across centuries as well. Now hear me please. Acts chapter 2 verses 1 through 41 forms one long unit that Luke is writing. Okay? Acts 2 verses 1 through 41 forms one long unit. And that long unit can be divided into three parts, three major sections for our understanding. Number one is what uh, Pradeep beautifully took us through last week, the first 13 verses, which is the pouring out of the Spirit, verses 1 through 13, the pouring out of the Spirit. The Spirit of God comes down and there's a question in the minds of the onlookers. What's happening to them? Are they drunk? How are they speaking in a language that is my own tongue? And everybody is asking that same question. So the pouring out of the Spirit was seen in the first 13 uh, 13 verses of chapter 2. And then the second major section is the proclamation by Peter in response to the audience's question about what is happening here. Peter gets up and begins to give this first speech called the missionary speech. And then he proclaims, that Jesus is Lord and Messiah. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. So the first section is what? The first section is the pouring out of the Spirit and the question raised by the audience. The second uh, section is Peter getting up and addressing the crowd and talking to them the very fact that he's understood from the Old Testament prophecies that Jesus is Lord and Messiah. 
And number three, in verses 37 to 41, you see the reaction of the people to the speech given by Peter, which is 3,000 people were cut to their heart, they run, and they get baptized immediately, having been saved. And they were added to the church, is what uh, is what Acts clearly says. So three parts. Number one, verses 1 through 13, you have the pouring out of the Spirit. Number two, in verses 14 through uh, 36, you have the proclamation by Peter that Jesus is Lord and Messiah, or Lord and Christ. And then in verses 37 through 41, the third section, the reaction of the people, which is positive. 3,000 people got saved. What a response, right? And got baptized and got added to the church. <clears throat> now, what is the story so far? We saw that the Spirit of God came down on the day of Pentecost as a fulfillment of the promise that God had given long back. And as the Spirit of God came down, there was a sound of rushing wind from heaven that drew a large crowd of people that had come to celebrate the feast of the Pentecost in Jerusalem. And, and therefore, since the Spirit of God came down, uh, these people started speaking in tongues and all of these people began to hear them declare the wonders of God in their own tongue. And they were surprised, they were astonished about it. Is this working? Yeah, sorry. And they were astonished about it. But they had a question. We had never seen a phenomenon, anything like this before. And therefore, some of them raised the question, what could this be? What is the explanation for it? And some of them mockingly said, these fellows must be drunk with new wine. And that's why they're speaking all kinds of tongues. You know, that happens, right? When people are drunk, they sometimes speak some kind of a language that is gibberish or you, know, you, can't, you can't even understand. Now, I'm not saying they were speaking gibberish, but that's the explanation that people gave, that uh, they, they were actually drunk, and that's why they could speak these languages. But Peter gets up. Peter stands up and is going to deliver a sermon just seven weeks after the crucifixion of Jesus in the city of Jerusalem, in the very city where he was crucified, and he's going to proclaim a sermon that launched the church on the day of Pentecost. A very powerful one. And he's going to talk about who Jesus is in this sermon. <clears throat> so he's telling us by starting, or he's telling them by starting off with the saying that it's just 9 o'clock in the morning. Okay? They wouldn't have even had their breakfast, forget getting drunk. You don't get drunk in the morning at 9 o'clock. Very simple, logical explanation. But there's more to it, and then Peter launches into it. So our passage this morning gives us two proofs that Jesus is Lord and Messiah. Two simple proofs that Jesus is Lord and Messiah. All right? So we're just going to look at two simple proofs. It's going to be a very simple sermon. I just want to proclaim this morning, in the words of Peter, who Jesus is for our understanding, that he is both Lord and Christ, or Lord and Messiah. So the first thing is what we see in verse 22. Verse 22 says that Jesus was accredited by God through supernatural works which he did among the Jews. Jesus was accredited by God through supernatural signs or works which he did among the Jews. God did mighty works through Jesus, during his earthly ministry is what Peter is trying to say. And in explaining this truth, Peter talks about this truth in two parts. Let's go step by step. The first thing he says is, Jesus was a man with divine accreditation. 
Jesus was a man with divine accreditation. Look at the first part of verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. Now Peter is beginning to address his audience directly again. Remember, he began with the same words early on in the message. And now he's addressing the audience once again with the same words, men of Israel, and he challenges them to listen to his words. He begins by announcing to them that he's going to be talking about one man and he's called Jesus of Nazareth. Now, as he uses the word Nazareth, you must begin to think what's happening in the culture. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? But Peter doesn't seem to be bothered by all of that. He is Jesus of Nazareth. Because a little later, he's going to proclaim that this Jesus of Nazareth, whom you mocked, whom you crucified, whom you rejected, whom you accused falsely, is now seated at the right hand of God, and he's now the Lord and the Messiah. So Peter says, I'm going to talk about Jesus of Nazareth. And he goes on to make various claims about Jesus, which will be repeated in various sections of the book of Acts in varying accounts. Now, these samples of the apostolic preaching, they serve a very important function in the book of Acts because they illustrate how the early church took opportunities and various opportunities to talk about Jesus at every given opportunity that they had. They talked about Jesus in varying situations, slightly altering stories here and there, but producing historical facts and talking about Jesus at every single opportunity that they had. Now, the first concern of Peter here is the divine attestation of Jesus. As the man from Nazareth, look at this, he was accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. Jesus is somebody who stands attested by God. He is somebody who stands here accredited by God. And Peter here is describing the miraculous ministry of Jesus. And he is saying that the miracles are the evidence that God has actually accredited Jesus. Miracles are the evidence that God has actually approved of Jesus or attested Jesus. And three terms here Peter uses to describe what took place in the course of his ministry. The first one, he says, is he performed miracles or they were miracles. Uh, the actual Greek word means powers. They mean that these are mighty works that Jesus performed. And they signify that God is operating or working through this person of Jesus. Jesus is God's agent performing things with divine power. That's what Peter is trying to say here. And the second word that he uses is the word wonders. These miracles also caused amazement in people. They caused wonder in people. And therefore, everybody who saw, him, who saw the miracles that he performed were amazed, wondered what kind of a man this was. Remember when uh, the disciples saw that he calmed the storm on the sea? They got up and immediately asked the question that everybody needs to ask. What kind of a man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. There was amazement. There was wonder. 
And then there were signs. They call signs because they pointed beyond themselves. Miracles were not an end in themselves. The miracles performed by Jesus pointed beyond themselves to who he was. And therefore, Peter is saying that these mighty works of miracles, signs, and wonders that Jesus performed all accredited who Jesus was. God was working all these things through him and God accredited him through these things. Remember, in his earthly ministry, he began working miracles at, the first miracle was done at Cana in Galilee, where he turned water into wine. And I also remember in John chapter 11, when he stands before the tomb of his friend Lazarus, and he says, Lazarus, come out. And what happens? Lazarus indeed walks out. Now that is separating God from man. That is separating God from man. I say that because if you and I were to stand in front of a cemetery and say, everybody come out, who will come out? I know who will come out. The caretakers will. They will come out and say, probably he's calling us for lunch. But not a dead person will rise and come out. That separates God from man. And Jesus performed all those miracles. In John chapter 10, verses 37 and 38, Jesus said this, If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe in me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe in me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So once again, Jesus is saying that the works attest to who I am in my identity. The works that I do, the miracles that I perform, the signs and the wonders, they're causing amazement in you, but they point beyond themselves to the fact that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. When we look at the Gospels, we have a detailed record of the miracles that Jesus performed. The scope and the ultimate unity of these works of Jesus direct attention to who he is in his identity. Now, one may wonder that even the prophets of the Old Testament also performed miracles, or the apostles later also performed miracles. But when we look at the scope of the works and the combination of acts accomplished by Jesus, you have to say that there is nobody who can do these things and only God who can do these things. Jesus was doing things that only God could do. Right from exorcisms to raising people from the dead to exercising authority over creation. These are things that only God could do. This is God's stuff. And that's why Peter begins and says, Jesus was a man with divine attestation. Jesus was a man with divine attestation. Now, you and I must realize this, please, as an application. That Peter, as he begins his exposition of the gospel, he begins by narrating the events in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. He begins by narrating the events in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to say this to you, and I say this to myself too, that the life of the Lord Jesus Christ is a significant resource for us in evangelism. We often neglect that. But the life of the Lord Jesus Christ is a significant, important resource for us in evangelism. Because the miracles of Jesus validate his claims to deity. The miracles of Jesus show us 
who he is in his identity. And they are recorded for us in all the four Gospels and they bear witness to the life of Christ. And I want to say this to you, don't underestimate the power of the Gospels that we have, the four Gospels that we have. And never be ashamed to ask your unbelieving friends to read them thoroughly. You know, I have a friend. Uh, He often makes fun of me and he says this, I didn't need preachers like you to come and preach the Gospel to me. What he means by that is, he was given a Bible when he was in college. He's from Trivandrum, and I think Charlie and Benji know who it is that I'm talking about. So uh, he was given a Bible when he was in college. He was doing his engineering, and he didn't like the fact that he was given the Bible. So he just threw the Bible across the room, and it uh, went and fell somewhere in one of the corners. And during the semester break in during engineering, in the semester break, when you get two or three months between your exams, your final exams, and the next semester, he was very bored. And so he just was rummaging through his room and found this Bible full of dust. He picked up the Bible and he told me this, that he started at Matthew and finished up in John's Gospel, John 21. And by the time he finished up, he was on his knees before Jesus. And that's what he means by saying that he didn't need preachers to come and preach the Gospel to him. So never be ashamed of asking our unbelieving friends to go through the Gospels. They're a wonderful resource about the life of Jesus. So that's the first thing we want to say, that Jesus was a man accredited with divine attestation. Second thing, Peter says that the Jews witnessed what God did through Jesus. The second part of verse 22. God did in your midst as you yourselves know. The audience knew very well that such a display of power took place right in their midst. Such a display of miracles happened right among them. So even the Jews from the other places could not escape the compelling evidence of Jesus' life and ministry that was available to them. They came from all across the Roman Empire. But even to them, such a compelling evidence was available. And so Peter is standing up confidently and saying, God did these among you as you yourselves know. All of you are aware of it. This is a historical fact. And Peter is claiming in a culture that gives considerable weight to the miraculous and that believes in the miraculous, Peter's claim would have had a lot of affirmation, a lot of weight there. Now, I just want to bring a little history here. Even the later critics of Jesus, the Jewish critics of Jesus who came after Jesus, they could not deny the fact that he performed miracles. Josephus, in his book Antiquities, he goes on to talk about Jesus as somebody who performed miracles. Nobody denied that. It's just the modern so-called scientific world who doesn't believe in the miraculous at all that denies that Jesus performed miracles, but nobody in his day or even after denied that he performed miracles. So the first proof that Peter gives that Jesus is Lord and Messiah is that Jesus was accredited by God through supernatural works which he did among the Jews. The first proof is that Jesus was accredited by God through miraculous works or supernatural works which he did among the Jews. It was evident to everybody. All right? Then there's a second proof that Peter gives, and that is in verses 23 through 28. They say that Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection were part of God's eternal plan for the Messiah. 
Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection were part of God's eternal plan for the Messiah. Now hear me please. The Jewish people had no concept at all of a crucified Messiah. If you talk about Messiah, especially in Second Temple Judaism, if you talk about Messiah, Messiah always wins. Messiah must win. Now there were these would-be Messiahs, 200 years either side of Jesus, many rose up saying they were the Messiahs. What usually would happen is they would have a following, they would go and do an uprising, and the Roman army with all of its sophisticated equipment, they would chase them to the desert, kill them all, and, if, and they would kill the would-be Messiah, and if anybody from that band escaped, just barely by the skin of their teeth, they had two choices. Number one, go home. Number two, find yourself another Messiah. Because if a Messiah died, he's not the Messiah in their understanding. Messiah always wins. And here, to such an audience who was questioning how could a Messiah possibly die, Peter is rising up and saying that Jesus didn't die a helpless death. Jesus' death was not the death of a helpless victim. He laid down his life in fulfillment of the sovereign plan of God who raised him from the dead on the third day. So this is all part of the sovereign plan of God. This is not an accident, is what Peter is saying. And Peter talks about this and explains this in three steps, and I want to go step by step, please. Number one, Jesus was crucified by wicked men in fulfillment of God's plan. Jesus was wicked, uh, crucified by wicked men in fulfillment of God's purposes. Look at verse 23. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men or wicked men. Now the Jews did not see Jesus as God's Messiah. They rejected him and gave him over to, look at the phrase here, wicked men or lawless men to be crucified. And Peter is saying all of this was according to God's plan and foreknowledge. God was very much in control of the events that are tied to Jesus. And God's plan included a plan of suffering for the Messiah Jesus. God's plan included for Jesus a part called suffering in the entire scheme of things. Let me just read for you a few verses that tell us that God's plan for Jesus as the Messiah, included suffering in it. I want to look at Luke 24. If some of you could turn fast, it's, you can, but otherwise just listen, please. Luke chapter 24, verses 25 through 27. And he said to them, O fools and slow in heart to believe in all that the prophets spoke, were not these things necessary for the Messiah to suffer and then enter into his glory? And then he says, And beginning from Moses and from all the prophets, he interpreted for them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Do you see that? Do you see that he was expounding from the Old Testament scriptures that the Messiah ought to die? It was in the divine plan for the Messiah. Next verse, Acts chapter 3 verse 18. But God, the things he proclaimed through the mouth of all the prophets, for his Messiah to suffer, he fulfilled in this way. For his Messiah to suffer, and where were they predicted? They were predicted in the mouths of the prophets, or through the mouths of the prophets. So the Old Testament clearly predicted that the Messiah ought to suffer. 
I want to go to Acts chapter 17, verses 2 and 3. And according to custom for Paul, he went to them and on three Sabbaths disputed with them from the scriptures, opening and setting side by side that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and to rise from the dead. What was Peter doing in the synagogue? He went for three Sabbaths and he was debating with them from the Old Testament scriptures that the Messiah ought to suffer. It was necessary for the Messiah to suffer. And therefore, from the divine perspective, nothing happened outside of God's plan. God's attested one was always going to suffer. On the other hand, Peter is also very direct about where the human responsibility lies. Look at this. He says, you crucified and killed this Jesus by the hands of wicked men. Peter is carefully trying to balance the elements of divine sovereignty and human responsibility for the crucifixion of Jesus. In the paradox of divine sovereignty and human freedom, Jesus died as a, as a result of deliberate decision made by lawless men. He died as a result of deliberate decision made by lawless men. However, in the mystery of the divine will, God was working in all these events behind the scenes so that the willful decision of these wicked men who crucified Jesus actually fulfilled God's eternal purposes and plans. So that's how God's sovereignty and human responsibility, they go hand in hand and they work together. You and I may not be able to understand all of it, but that's affirmed by Scripture very clearly. And Peter is saying that there is God's plan, there is God's sovereignty, and there is human responsibility as well, because you with the wicked hand, you with the help of wicked men have crucified him. Now notice the plural reference here that he's talking about. He's saying you are lawless men, or you with the help of lawless men put him to death. He probably is talking about Pilate and Herod and the Jewish leadership there. And the Jewish leadership symbolized the entire nation that was led away by them in rejecting Jesus. And therefore, the culpability there was on the part of everybody who was living in Jerusalem especially and in the nation of Israel. And that's why the Jewish crowd who was surrounding there at Pentecost, Peter is looking at every single one of them and saying, you crucified him by the help of lawless men. They were responsible for it. They were culpable for it. So Jesus was crucified by wicked men in fulfillment of God's plan. Secondly, God raised up Jesus as death could not hold him back. Now notice this. God raised up Jesus because, says Peter, death could not hold him back. Look at the verse, verse 24. God raised him up, losing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now this verse supplies a very important element in the early Christian preaching. God raised Jesus from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead. Now let that sink in, please. Because we often take it for granted, isn't it? God raised Jesus from the dead. Now here is a key fact that is stressed time and again, time and again by the early preachers, especially in the book of Acts. They didn't need to prove it. They just said, we are witnesses. It happened. We are witnesses and it happened. Now, God raised Jesus from the dead is further described for us in this verse in a very unusual manner. Look at this. Freeing him from the agony of death. 
or losing him from the pangs of death. The divine plan took Jesus through suffering and then to exaltation as Savior and Lord. And Peter goes on to argue here that it could not have been done otherwise. Why? Because God raised up Jesus and it was not possible for him to be under the grips or still in the grips of death. Death could not hold him any longer. And God raised him from the dead. It was impossible for the Son of God to be prevented by death from exercising his eternal kingly reign. And the implication, therefore, very importantly, listen please, the implication here is that Jesus was resurrected because he is already the Messiah, and the resurrection did not make him the Messiah. Is that clear? The resurrection did not make him the Messiah, but Jesus was raised from the dead because he's already the Messiah. Remember, that's exactly what he talked about in verse 22. Jesus was a man from Nazareth who was accredited by God by signs, wonders, and miracles. Because he's the Messiah, it was the death could no longer hold him. Death could not have any grip on him any longer. And therefore, God raised him from the dead. So God raised up Jesus as death could not hold him back. Lastly, the resurrection of Jesus the Messiah was foretold in the Psalms. Look at verses 25 through 28. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Now here's a beautiful verse. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness in your presence. Now having set forth the basic confession that Jesus is the Messiah, Peter is seeking support with scriptural proof from Psalm 16. And he's quoting verses 8 through 11 of Psalm 16. It's important for us to understand that Peter is saying that David actually wrote that psalm. David authored that psalm. It's important here, especially in this context, because the application is for the person of Jesus, who is the great-grandson of David, who is a descendant of David. Now, originally, in the original context of Psalm 16, the psalm may have been a plea of the psalmist that God would vindicate him and that he might escape death and Sheol. And Peter is actually applying the psalm messianically, saying that the psalm goes beyond the individual who actually sang it. It goes beyond the time of the individual who actually sang it. And Peter is saying that, yes, David sang that psalm. Yes, it does apply to him, but he looked forward and he actually spoke about the greater David who is going to come as one of his descendants. And death could no longer hold him. The agony of death could no longer hold him. And he is saying that this is a proof in the Old Testament that the Messiah would actually rise from the dead. Would actually rise from the dead. We need to understand this, that the concept of a physical resurrection within history was not a concept that the Jews had. The concept that the Jews had was that all of God's people, along with the wicked, would rise at the end of history before the day of judgment and be judged by God. 
So they had no concept of an isolated individual resurrection within history. So the resurrection of Jesus here is a new idea within history in Judaism before the end actually came. And in this speech, Peter is saying that the resurrection of Jesus within history that actually happened proves and fulfills what Psalm 16 verses 8 through 11 talked about in the life of David. Now the final verse, look at the final verse, it contains a note of triumph. The one who experiences God's protection has had the ways of life revealed to him. And this leaves him to be glad in God's presence. Again, Peter is saying all of this language fits the language of resurrection. That Jesus indeed has been raised from the dead. So the resurrection of Jesus the Messiah was foretold in the Psalms. So two things we saw as proofs that Jesus is Lord and Messiah. The first thing is, Jesus was accredited by God through supernatural works which he did among the Jews. The second thing, Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection were part of God's eternal plan for the Messiah. So what's the, what's the point of this morning's sermon? The whole passage basically says that Jesus' miracles, death and resurrection all authenticate him as both Lord and Messiah. Jesus' miracles, death and resurrection all authenticate him as both Lord and Messiah. The life and death of Jesus reveal that he is the Messiah and the sentence which humans passed on him has been reversed by God through his resurrection. What does it mean to us? I just want to apply two things very simply um, to, to our lives, please. Now listen very carefully. I'll finish up in about five to seven minutes. The first thing. What does it mean to our lives that Jesus is both Lord and Messiah and he's been exalted to the right hand of God from where he poured out the Spirit on the day of Pentecost? First thing, it means that we must constantly remember what the cross achieved. It means that you and I must constantly remember what the cross achieved. The gospel is the good news that God's promise has come in the person of Jesus has been fulfilled in the person of Jesus who died for sin and was raised up on the third day and is now seated at the right hand of God distributing the benefits of salvation. Which is, when you proclaim the gospel in His name, He is the one who gives the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Spirit. And therefore, we must constantly remember what the cross achieved. It is also therefore important for us To respond right to Jesus. How do we respond to Jesus? Having understood that he is the Lord and Messiah is absolutely vital for us this morning. I want to say this here as a plea, please. If there is anybody seated here who has been coming to church or you are here for the first time and you are listening to this. And you have understood at least the basic truth that Jesus is both Lord and Messiah. And we've been proclaiming the fact that we must respond right to Him. If you're asking the question, how do I respond? Now, here is the basic gospel. That you're a sinner and you've been separated from God because of your sin. And you can never be reconciled to God except through the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And Peter will go on to say in Acts chapter 4, For there is no other name given to us under heaven by which we must be saved. And therefore, you must repent of your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. And like we said, He will give you the benefits of salvation, which is the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Spirit. And the Spirit comes and indwells you, and He will transform your life bit by bit, day by day, as you are obedient to Him. And one day when He comes back, you and I will look exactly as He is. What a salvation, isn't it? This is done through the cross and His exaltation. And He's from there poured out the gift of the Spirit. And therefore, we must always and constantly remember what the cross achieved. It is also important for us as Christians to remove misconceptions about the cross and show the world what the cross is. Because in the ancient world, for a general historian or somebody who is secular-minded, it is just a means of death, albeit a gory or, or a terrible form of death, but it's just a way of killing people. But that's exactly what God used to bring about the salvation of the whole world. The second thing, it means that we need to recover awe of the ascended law of glory. You and I must recover awe of the ascended uh, Lord of glory. The role of Jesus and the position he has right now as a result of his ascension tells us who he is in his identity. The Bible clearly says, that he is seated at the right hand of God, or right hand of the majesty on high. Can anybody share the very authority of God? Can anybody share the very throne of God? No prophet can even dream of thinking or, or even think of such a thing. No apostle can even dream of such a thing. It is only somebody who has his identity within the identity of Yahweh who can be sharing the very throne of God and distributing the gifts of salvation in his own name. And that's why in the book of Acts, the gospel is preached in the name of Jesus. People are called to repent and confess their sins to Jesus and receive the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Spirit from Jesus. Now you understand the identity of Jesus in Luke, Acts, as we studied it, that he is indeed both Lord and Messiah. Let me finish with an illustration here. And I think perhaps nobody has best illustrated the meekness and the majesty of Jesus better than uh, C.S. Lewis in recent history. Uh, this is for kids and also for the older ones. In his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Lucy, a character there, you know, is posing questions to uh, Mrs. and Mr. Beaver uh, about Aslan the lion, who is a character representative of Jesus. So here is a conversation. Lucy asked, is he a man? Mr. Beaver sternly said, Aslan, a man? Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you are, dearie, and no mistake, Mrs. Beaver said. If there's anyone who can, before, uh, who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Lucy said, 
then he isn't safe. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's a king, I tell you. So in this conversation, uh, Lucy is being told that Aslan is a lion, the great lion who represents Christ, but he's good, but he isn't safe. Christ is good, but he's in safe, so to speak, because Jesus really is the exalted king. He is the Lord of the universe. So therefore, you and I must stand in awe of him and confess him as Lord. And that's Peter's message for us this morning. Know with certainty, he says, be assured of this, that Jesus is both Lord and Messiah, and he is now seated at the right hand of God. Thank you for your patience. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you for this morning. We want to thank you for speaking to us from your word, especially from the proclamation that Peter made on the day of Pentecost, Lord. When people were confused about the phenomenon that they were seeing, where the Spirit descended, and establish the church that day, O Lord. We appreciate the courage of Peter to stand in front of such a hostile audience and proclaim boldly that Jesus is indeed Lord and Messiah, and therefore they ought to repent. We stand in awe of you this morning, O Lord, having been reminded of the fact that you are indeed the Lord of the universe. You are indeed Lord and Christ, who is seated at God's right hand, distributing the benefits of salvation to anybody who repents of their sin and comes to you in faith for salvation. We want to thank you for such a blessed salvation you've given us, O Lord. We pray for anybody here seated who's listening to the message, who doesn't know you personally. We pray that they would too repent of their sin and enjoy the benefits of salvation that Christ alone can present. We want to thank you, O Lord, for this day. We also want to Pray for the time of fellowship we're going to have. We pray that we'd exalt you, even in our conversations, as our glorified Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name.